the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, grammar mechanics strike for better conditions in the mines. That's M-I-N-D-S. Leaving Wernicke's wrecked, broke is broken, and sentences dropped in mid-thought and... Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel, along with... I'm Bain Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio. And... Publishing Intern Rachel Mintel. Well, this time on the podcast, we have part two of our interview with neuroscientist Dr. Ted Roberts... Ted talks about his nonfiction article on the Bain.com website, Are We Just Wired Differently? You remember uh, you sat in on that, right? I did, absolutely. It was a great interview. just ran a bit long. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, what was Your your question will come up on this one, I think. I believe so. It pops up. It, basically, it's about our personality and behavioral differences, but that are part of your brain structure or... Um, and there's been all these studies that say things like that uh, conservative and liberal minds are different, different things spark inside them. He pretty much puts paid to that argument. Also, uh, we talk a lot about identical twins with him. Um, how come they don't have identical personalities? We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. First, here's the news. Things are going to be changing a bit here with the Bain ebook issue dates. As you may know, our print books usually come out on the first Tuesday of their month of official publication. So our March books this 2016 will be on sale at booksellers on March the 2nd. Our ebooks for the exact same books had been going on sale the 15th of the month previous to a book's publication month. In fact, right now you can get all the March books now and this is mid-february toward the end of february now all the new issues are are on sale at bain ebooks but we're going to rationalize that crazy system rachel tell us what we're going to do to make things all better we're going to start releasing the ebooks and print books on the same schedule come april so new ebooks will now come out the second tuesday of the publication months along with their associated print book this will start in march so the ebooks that would normally be available on March 16th will now be out on April 5th. So that means that the ebooks will now come out exactly the same time as the print books come out. So they will, the ebooks will become available um, on Amazon and at Bain ebooks uh, on the first Tuesday of the month that the book is out at bookstores everywhere. Is there more? How does this affect the monthly bundles and eARCs? We won't be changing when the bundles are offered and all the other usual policies are the same but this will extend the availability of the bundles and eARCs by two weeks. The two monthly newsletters, which you, which you should sign up for at bain.com front page if you haven't, will still come out as usual. If you have any questions about this, email info at bain.com. Monthly bundles is when you, when you get all the books um, Yes, they come out in they, the month. you get portions early. of them as each month, as each week progresses until you get the full ebook, right? Yes. At the, nothing's going to change with those except that they're going to last... Uh, two weeks longer, right? and eARCs are on sale. eARCs are advanced reading copies of a book yeah. that have all the typos and everything in them, um, and we offer those until the book becomes available. You can buy those for a lot of our books, um, which is really cool because that means months earlier you can get the book in the next book in the series, right. your favorite series. As long as you don't mind the misplaced commas. Right, and sometimes other egregious mm -hmm. things, sure. and sometimes even... They get kind of rewritten. Uh, the eARCs will be available until the first Tuesday of the month of the book's publication as well. And then they won't be on sale anymore. We won't be changing um, anything except matching this up. And um, finally, the, the newsletters are going to stay the same. And they announce both print. One of the newsletters is the ebook newsletter, and the other newsletter is the print book newsletter. You should sign up for those. Everyone should. If you have any questions, email us at info at bain.com, and Christopher will answer it. 
That is true. Changes afoot, but rational changes, we hope, onward and upward to the stars. This is part two of a two-part interview with neuroscientist Dr. Ted Roberts discussing his Bain.com nonfiction article, Are We Just Wired Differently? Part one of the interview is available on last week's podcast. I want to welcome Ted Roberts to the podcast, a.k.a. Dr. Rob Hampson, a.k.a. to me at least, Speaker to Lab Animals. Uh which is what I, I really call him in my mind. Hello. Hi, Rob. Uh, hi, Tony. Thanks for having me on the podcast today. Ted Roberts is the pseudonym of neuroscience researcher Robert E. Hampson, Ph.D., whose cutting-edge research includes work on effects of drugs, radiation, and disease on memory function and the development of a neuroprosthetic to restore damaged memory function. His interest in public education and brain awareness has led him to the goal of writing accurate yet enjoyable brain science via blogging, short fiction, and what we're talking about today, nonfiction science articles for the science fiction and fantasy community. Ted Roberts' other nonfiction articles for Bain.com are available in the Bain.com free nonfiction collections uh, of 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, and this year, 2016. Obviously, we've had you... <laughs> had a lot of great uh, Ted Roberts essays on the website. This month at Bain.com, we are featuring a really fascinating nonfiction article by speaker to lab animals, Ted Roberts, um, called Are We Just Wired Differently? So um, the other thing that you bring up in the article is uh, male and female differences in brains uh, in in the wiring in the neurochemistry and and you say there are some differences particularly in mental diseases and dysfunctions women get more schizophrenia is this true uh, yes as a matter of fact well they are more prone to it under certain conditions there is a study that just came across my desk this morning uh, that shows that one of the consequences of juvenile drug abuse can be the development of schizophrenia. We now know that there is a gene defect which leads to this susceptibility and that gene is much more common in women than it is in men. And so the incidence of schizophrenia is one of those in which it does definitely appear to be much more common in women than it does in men. Now, schizophrenia is not the classic multiple personality that we see from movies like All About Eve or um, can't think of what the other one is uh, right offhand. Yeah. Uh, the one that Sally Civil. Uh, Civil. was in. So at any rate... Yeah. Uh, there are. There's also an Ingmar Bergman film that's about schizophrenic woman, but anyway, go on. That was the All About, all that was the all about Eve, I think, the Ingmar Bergman. Schizophrenia is not multiple personality. That's totally different. It's, it's a subset, and it is a description. What schizophrenia is, is schizophrenia is simply an abnormal ability to process information and act on it. So... Will a schizophrenia a patient see hallucinations? They may. Will they hear voices? They may. Will they have changes in their personality? They may. They may have one of these. They may have all of these. They may have none of these. But the key is that they don't process information and then act on it in the same manner as a, quote, normal person would. So, uh, one example would be that we know we should stay away from fires, stay away from uh, sparking electrical circuits. There are, uh, we should drive safely when we drive, but a schizophrenic person will have an unusual reaction and won't think anything about approaching too close to a fire or um, driving recklessly. It's because they don't have 
a normal processing of information that leads to accurate decisions or safe decisions mm. or like they will use the oxford comma hey which is oh <laughs> yes they'll use the oxford comma instead of the oxford instead comma. of writing the way a good american should yes that's right um that's a perfect example so i guess i'm a little schizophrenic because i use oxford comma oh my god yeah, me too same here <laughs> so but all right so um and and men there's more autism in men Definitely. And that's something we still don't understand why that's more prevalent in men. There are, uh, and then there's incidents of bipolar. Bipolar tends to be a little more common in women, but strictly mania tends to be a little more common in men. Mm. So what, what comes down to why? All right, so we're not really talking about personality yet. This is more like disease or dysfunction. And, and you know, it's huge right now, gender differences and, and whatnot. What are, are there actually wiring differences? Do they account for different behaviors, skills, even sexual identity and, um, and uh, ways of perceiving reality? Or is this... Um... Over the past 30 years, we've seen a lot of evidence that there were brain areas that were configured differently between men and women. When I say configured differently, they may be different sizes, they may be connected to other brain areas in a different manner, or there may be cells and activity in an area in males that's not there in females or in females that isn't there in males. And we see a lot of studies that say, hey, look, I can show you that 80% of females look like this, and 80% of males look like that. And a very recent study from last November took a, an analysis of more than a 1,000 uh, people and started looking at all of these studies where there was shown to be a distinction between men and women. And an individual study that says, okay, here's one brain area, and it's more pronounced in women than it is in men doesn't mean that the entire rest of the brain shows that exact same dichotomy between women and men. So what this study did, it was a meta-analysis, which is to go back and look at all of this data collected from men and women and say, okay, here's area A. I'm going to look at this area that has to do with the ability to do interior decorating. And I'm going to say, is this a male trait or a female trait based on the original study? Now I'm going to look at these thousand brains and say, okay, uh, how many showed the male trait? How many showed the female trait? And then they go on to the next area, brain area B and brain area C and brain area D. And what they actually found is that the uh, shape, the function, and this discrimination between the male type and the female type was nowhere near consistent. The, an individual might show the male characteristic in one area, the female characteristic in another area, and somewhere in between and yet a third area. And when they went through all of these studies, what they found was, yes, there are a few individuals who show all male functions, there's a few individuals that show all female functions, but almost everybody was in the middle with a combination. And it's sort of like if you're, if you're familiar with the shape of a bell curve, it's a really, really steep bell curve. There's very little, very few individuals out on the extremes and a lot in the middle. And so the idea of male versus female distinctive brains sort of took a blow with that study because they're saying that there are there's no one male type of brain and there's no one female type of brain and that almost everybody has a mix of these characteristics uh connor you wanted to ask something yeah i had a question um now that we're talking about things like the the university of london study liberal conservative and uh wiring differences in male and females I guess we can see a pattern of this sort of neuroscience starting to reach out to the popular culture and uh, it's becoming a bit more mainstream. Are you, you know, is the information that's getting out there, are you happy to see it out there or are there some misconceptions being created? Um, what are just kind of your reactions to 
what's happening out there right now. Oh, I'm very happy to see neuroscience getting out there. Uh, there are misconceptions. There's always going to be misconceptions. Uh, it's one of the reasons I do what I do is I'm trying to get people to go back to original sources and read them. And in many cases, I do realize that a person is going to try to pick up a scientific paper. They won't understand it. And I'm hoping to give people the tools to be able to understand. But I love seeing that neuroscience is getting into the popular culture. Um, I despair a little bit when it gets abused, but... Again, as I said, that's one of the reasons I do what I do, which is to write about science for the public, to help them understand it, and to try to shoot down some of the misconceptions. One of the things, uh, one of the ways we see that, of course, is in science fiction. You use the example of timelines, I will fear no evil, for instance, to, to discuss male and female, uh, which is a seriously weird timeline something oh, <laughs> written in a, in a bad time for him. But I, re I really like that novel, actually. I did, too. Uh, I've been rereading a lot of Heinlein lately, and you can see a lot of development throughout his career. But what I found interesting, and the reason I used it for an example, is is twofold. There's one scientifically unsupported idea, which was the fact that after the brain transplant, um, that took place, the, the personality of the individual uh, still remained, the, of, the, of the body donor remained, and we really don't have any way of supporting that type of a concept short of metaphysics. But with medicine and with neuroscience, what was interesting was the fact that the uh, brain transplant from a male brain put into a female body still tended to maintain uh, the male attitudes for a while until the two personalities started to melt, uh, uh, Johan and Joanne, as, as the uh, uh, characters were named. And I further look at a lot of science fiction in which a that involves telepathy and and some form of telepathic transference and what i note is that most science fiction authors tend to keep the characteristic of the mind as opposed to the brain so if you have a male telepath inhabiting a female brain female body they still tend to act like a male and that was um most notable I believe the reference I used was um, David Gerald's War of the Tor, and you had these brain-hopping telepaths, but you saw a little bit of it in Starship Troopers with the telepathic core, and you saw it with the, uh, um, you see it in a number of other studies and, and stories that use virtual reality environments. You take a personality out of the brain, out of the structure, and it still remains essentially male or essentially female. So one of the things that really hasn't happened in science fiction is this exploration of male brain, female brain, and what happens if you take the mind out of the biology and, and try to look at whether or not it's still going to act the same way. Everybody seems to uh, think in terms of the disembodied brain in a jar, the personality is going to stay with the brain. And it will still be essentially male or essentially female, even without a body. God only knows what's going <laughs> to When I'm uploaded, I think of it. Eh, never mind. The... <laughs> But the the and so that's an interesting question. When when we can get to the point of uploading a uh, our memories, uh, how is that going to be affected by not having the biology ruling it? I, I mean, as a science fiction writer, I've often thought that that some of the biology will have to go along, or else you can't really be a human anymore. And by the way. That was very well handled uh, by Anne McCaffrey's uh, brain chips. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, the biology did go along. And even though the biology was not functioning, the brains were, but the biology was necessary to keep the brain functioning and keep the brain sane. So back in the, in the long ago before time that I remember, the late 80s and 90, and early 90s, you know, there was a lot of talk of gender, sexual differences being entirely plastic, and then um, it became politically useful for these differences to be wired in. And so people talked about it now, that way. And now there's this um, sort of uh, fight over um, whether, you know, transgender or, you know, are people born this way? Are they not? It sounds like that the neuroscience is leaning back toward plasticity in this, in gender and such. And, and away from uh, things being determined. Is that a correct uh, statement? I think what they're leaning toward is it being a lot more com- uh, complex than a simple gender determination. Right, yeah. And the it's uh, a person is not male because they have a male brain. A person is not female because they have a female brain. And with the findings that the typical human brain is a mosaic of the male and female attributes, we get back to a question of the plasticity, whether the uh, gender identity is going to be on the basis of experience and other factors that will uh, combine with this mosaic to push uh, in one direction or another. And so, yes, I think uh, we do get back to plasticity much more so than simple wiring. Yeah. I love that idea of the, of the mosaic. I mean, this uh, people are personalities are, are, are not stereotypes. Right. And again, one of the reasons why I love to talk about this with science fiction audiences is the idea that maybe at some point I'll trigger a science fiction author to say, hey, that's a neat idea. Let me put that into a story because uh, because it becomes education when it's done right and when the science is viewed as science then I think it also contributes to public education about science. I can't tell you how much physics I learned by reading it in a science fiction story and then going and looking it up. So it's one of the reasons for, uh, for trying to write some of these articles in which we bring neuroscience to the public. What, all right, so let's talk about twins, which is another section uh, in the article. One of my favorite Heinlein juveniles is Time for the Stars, where, uh, which is a take on the twin paradox, but that's in physics. But in neurobiology, are twins wired the same? I mean, one would think uh, if they... If, start out being wired the same. Yeah. They, they start out being wired the same, but one of the things to keep in mind when... Any mammalian brain develops is that the cells in one part of the brain have to connect to other parts of the brain. Well, they do so by sending out processes that will eventually become axons and dendrites and all of the uh, biological pieces that make up the brain. What the what guides those projections and those connections is all biochemical. There are what we call trophic factors, and they're trophic, meaning that they're going to attract. And so uh, axons will grow in the direction that takes them up a chemical gradient toward a source of some certain growth factor chemicals, these trophic factors. And once the wiring starts to take place, that's not... 100% genetically controlled. So twins start out wired the same, but they do not stay wired the same, not by a long shot. Um, Their genetics and what we would call their genotype is the same, but very frequently we can find that the phenotype is different. And one of those differences then would be handedness. Another would be... um, their basic talent in terms of one might be more uh, one might be more scientifically or mathematically or academically inclined, whereas the other might be more sports and creativity inclined. I had for a time two foster brothers who were twins. They couldn't be more diff- different for being identical twins. 
And yet we also know that there are many twins out there who are identical. So, so there are, they start out wired the same and then their experiences and everything else about living their life is going to create two different individuals. I, I think it was you that told me that, which surprised the heck out of me that, um, that twins can be different handed. Yes, they can. And that's actually rather surprising. Um, Part of that goes back to biology. Part of that goes back to the question of when the zygote split to become two different individuals. And we're talking about identical twins in this case, too, right? We're talking about identical twins. That's right. And they're ones who share the exact same genetics. Um, one fertilized egg starts to grow, splits in two, and develops into two unique individuals uh, while still being genetically identical. So, um, getting back to science fiction, you bring up uh, Miles Vorkosigan and Mark, his clone, in the article. Lois is always very subtle and, and does a lot of research on this stuff. Yes, she does, and I really liked the treatment of this. Um, Miles, of course, in the entire series of stories, we know that he was exposed to a toxin while the mother was pregnant uh, while the fetus was gestating at this and so the and yet Mark was grown as a clone just from a genetic sample and so we have the case which should in fact be twins but we know that because one was exposed to the toxin during development um, Miles was uh, dwarfed in height he had brittle bones and they were short and he was he had all sorts of joint and um and bone issues and connective tissue issues and so on and so forth but the brain was essentially untouched it was it was uh, a highly intelligent individual now we have mark who has all of the same genetics but without the exposure to the toxin and mark is just a exactly as intelligent and, if I may say, a rather twisted intelligence because Lois did a great job of creating her, her characters with a unique outlook and uh, the and unique abilities. And yet, Mark, for being genetically identical, is very different from Miles. And that gets into a field that's called epigenetics, which is the expression of genes. A gene exists in our DNA, and it's a code, and it's a code that uh, causes proteins to be created, and from those proteins and other chemicals in the body, we build the body itself, and we build the brain structure, but we also build the um, neurotransmitters that connect and uh, communicate from different brain areas, but the genes can be changed, uh, not in their actual code, but in how they are expressed within the body. And that's epigenetics, is the ability to go in and make those changes. And there's some fascinating things going on, which is way more than we can get into today. But the differences between Miles and Mark turn out to be epigenetics. What are the effects of the outside world on this human organism? And so that's, again, where we now get um, two individuals, equal genetic potential, equal intelligence per se, totally different personalities, uh, totally different physical bodies because of the epigenetic functions as well. Would it be fair to say that um, our conception of the brain in, at the moment is, is more like a garden, uh, maybe a self-tending garden, than uh, than something that's a statue or set in in any way you know you you must have the the basics but things change according to different conditions right spoken like a writer that's perfect because um the analogy between a garden um a botanical garden and a statuary garden is 
is an excellent one because you have all of the potential there. Uh, it's all organized into one place. It's all a beautiful construct, but one is going to be totally unchanging. The statue is unchanging, whereas the botanical garden is always going to be changing, maybe changing with seasons and what specific effect the different plants have on each other. And I think that's a perfect example of what the brain does. It starts off with a genetically imprinted set of instructions to build a brain, with particular set of connections, but then everything that we experience is going to alter that brain. I actually can draw back to one of the articles I wrote for Bain last summer, which talks about memory and how memory is something that is constantly changing, and it is one of the ways in which the initial wiring of the brain gets changed in order to lay down the memories and to store and to be able to recall the memories of things we experience in our life. So we know, we know just from that alone that brains are changing. And so the garden analogy is a great one. It really is. I like that. Do you guys have any other questions you'd like to ask our neuroscience guru from about? I did, actually. Uh, at the beginning, uh, Tony mentioned that you were working on neural prosthetics. Are we talking about, like, replacement neurons in the event of stroke and whatnot, or is it something a little bit, well, different from that? A uh, little bit higher scale than replacement neurons. Okay. Uh, we're actually looking at how well can we mathematically model certain brain areas and their functions. Can we then put that into a chip, and can we wire around damaged brain areas. Oh, okay, cool. And that would be, and so we call it uh, replacement parts for the brain. That was coined by a colleague of mine, Dr. Ted Berger at USC. And the idea is, is it possible and can we develop replacement parts that can take over the function? We're not going to put in anything that isn't already there. We're going to take the normal activity. It's just that if there's an area of the brain that has been damaged, can we bridge around it with a circuit that will take over that function? And so it's a pretty neat study. And again, that's one of those things that we could spend a whole lot more time discussing. Absolutely. God, think of the implications. That's that would be wonderful for. Uh... Oh yeah. Is it safe to say that we have not solved the nature versus nurture? Nurture. <laughs> uh, is is that even a useful distinction anymore? I don't think it's a useful distinction because I think it's nature and nurture. Mm -hmm. It's uh, uh, twin studies show that um, they're because we have twins who are absolutely identical and continue to be identical. They f finish each other's sentences. They work in the same field. They uh, have the same likes, and we have instances of twins marrying twins, which is an interesting concept in and of itself. But at the same time, we also know that each individual is, unless we have some way of making their experience identical, they're going to diverge. They're going to experience different things. They're going to make different memories. They're going to develop different skills, all of which is going to feed back into the plasticity of the brain. And it's going to change its structure and it's going to change its function. So I think we... It, I think it's not nature versus nurture. I think it's nature and nurture. Cool. Well, the article at Bain.com is Are We Wired Differently by Ted Roberts. It is currently featured on the front page of Bain.com, and it will be available eternally in the ebook collection. Uh, Free Nonfiction 2016 is the name of the ebook, which is the collection of everything we're using for nonfiction this year. Um, you can get that free at Bain eBooks. And we have a new address for Bain eBooks, which is Bain.com forward slash Bain eBooks. We've redone the, uh, the website. So, Speaker to Lab Animals, Ted Roberts and Dr. Robert Hampson, thank you, all three of you for being with us today. I uh, see. Now, there's a perfect example of three personalities in one brain. So I really appreciate this. Thanks, Tony, uh, for the opportunity to talk, and it has been quite enjoyable. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles, 
when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. Chapter 26 See, Hooky, Tina's toy over, Steve said. See, Hooky, Tina's toy over. Are you sure this is a good idea, Steve? Stacy asked. No, Steve said, but it's the best idea I can come up with. What do you want, Smith? The voice growled over the radio. I want to meet you out here, Steve said. Fuck you, bite me, and go away. You're about out of fuel, or already out of fuel, Steve said. You're fishing for your dinner and not catching a lot of fish. I'll trade you a half a tank of gas to come out to this location. When you get here, I'll throw in a load of supplies. The gas is just to be able to get out here. Or you can keep fishing for yellowtail. Yellowtail isn't bad eating. When you're catching any, Steve said, it gets tiresome as sushi. I want to make you an offer I don't think you'll refuse. What offer? Isham asked suspiciously. And why are you so nice all of a sudden? Because before you were a pain and a problem I did not need, Steve said. Now you are a potential asset. I'll even lend you a respirator. Toy, Cooper, are you serious? You want these headaches? Steve asked. You're the second choice for this. No way, Chris responded. So there's a hook, Isham said. Actually, I can see you seeing it as a positive, Steve said. You're also going stir-crazy with nothing to do. I want to offer you an opportunity. This is going to be a doozy, ain't it? You son of a bitch, was the first thing Isham said as he stepped onto the flush deck. I feel the same way, Steve said, holding out a respirator. Take a walk with me. I know you don't want me to captain this thing, Isham said, putting the respirator on. How the hell do you use this thing? Steve showed him how to fit it. You could barely figure out how to steer it, Steve said, walking up to the back deck. However, part of the opportunity is being able to sleep on it in a very comfortable cabin. One that stinks, Isham said, looking at the saloon. Jesus, this is a wreck. And someone needs to clean it up, Steve said. Some ones. It will take a lot of people to clean it. And to run it. So you can have the big yacht, Isham growled. So that we can use it as an at-sea support base, Steve said. Somewhere for the refugees and the crews to fall back on for rest and refit. I don't know if you'd realize it, but there are storms that are about to start sweeping down on this area. We're going to have to leave soon. Our crews aren't good enough. Our boats aren't good enough to survive the North Atlantic in winter. Or a bad tropical. We need a base. The large isn't big enough. How are you... Isham said, shaking his head. I'll provide plenty of answers, Steve said. But I want you to follow me and see something first. Dead bodies? Isham said. He'd seen quite a few on the way down. Since he hadn't been working with the flotilla, he'd had to stop and try not to puke at the first few. Both in body armor, Steve said, because there was a mutiny by the, well, mercenaries the owner hired. He wasn't killed. They deliberately infected him with the zombie virus. Jesus, Isham said. Sick. What's your point? This is why I threw you out, Steve said, pointing, and why I've thrown others out. What they wanted was the power and control. It's what you want. But they couldn't say, I've been given X amount of power and control and I'm fine with that. They wanted all the pussy and all the booze and all the gold. And they each wanted all of it. I wasn't going to rape your daughter, Smith, Isham said. But you would have had others following you that would, Steve said. 
or would try. Everyone talks about faith, but I would not suggest it with either one. This is the darkness that every one of us has in us, Jack. And this is what happens when we let that darkness loose. Fontana has it, I have it, and you have it, but you use other means. What I understand, what Fontana understands, is that when you let it loose, this is the result. No man can trust another. You desire power, control, prestige. I'm willing to give you those. But the moment that I suspect that you are going in this direction, then I will kill you, Jack. Without hesitation and without warning, this will not happen on my watch. You still haven't said exactly what you want, Isham said. I want you to be the exo of the flotilla and of this boat, Steve said. The operations officer, if you prefer. I want you to, first, get this place cleaned up. We'll recruit the people in Coventry for it, which is part of the challenge because they're not exactly self-starters. God, no, Isham said, grimacing. They're who we have, Steve said, shrugging. You're a micromanager. This will give vent to that. Then find the ones that can do jobs, actually do them, and set them to it on this boat. Others will be sent on board that are actually skilled. I want this to be turned into a support boat, not a floating palace. And we need to get the resupply system under control. Repairs to the boats, division of materials, organized salvage teams. That will all be on your shoulders. Something for you to do, Jack. Prestige. Power. Control. And the second I let it go to my head, I get a bullet in the back of the head, Isham said with a dry laugh. I won't say that we're not playing fast and loose with the law of the sea, Steve said, but the law has always held that sedition, mutiny if you would, is grounds for the death sentence. Try to use the authority I'm giving you to take over, and yes, I will put a bullet in your head. Not because I want the power and authority and control, because I know it will lead to this, he said, pointing at his feet. I don't know if you understand that, if you ever can. I can't exactly mutiny if you've got all the guns, Isham said. There will be guns, Steve said. I'm about done waiting for whoever that is on the phone to make up his mind. If I don't get a call soon, I'm going to strip that damn cutter without permission and damn to them. And one point to this is a place to put materials. You really have been talking to Washington? Isham asked. Washington is gone, Steve said. You know that. I heard about your trip to the coast. I don't know who they are. Just that the subs, or some subs, follow their orders. Jack, I need someone to ramrod this, to get it done. You're a get-it-done person. Can I trust you not to knife me in the back? You're so trusting, Isham said. It's a well-known fact that Australia is a nation populated entirely by criminals, Stephen toned, and criminals trust no one. Funny, Isham said. So you want the job? Steve asked. I don't know, Isham said, rubbing his head. Let me see the cabin. It got trashed out by the mutineers, but not the zombies, Steve said. The starboard side cabin was the size of a small home with a magnificent sweep of windows and a bathroom that was worthy of any palatial home. On the other hand, some of the fixtures had been ripped out. Gold? Isham said, fingering a hole in the alabaster countertop where a faucet had been pulled out. Probably, Steve said. I don't suppose it's still on board? Funny story, that. Steve turned the toy away as the Alpha dropped anchor in Jew Bay and headed for the Live and Large. Live and Large, toy, over, Steve called. Toy, living large. Just had to one-up us, over? Something like that, Steve replied, coming alongside for a chat. Hey, Steve, Kuzma said, shaking his head. The petty officer looked much better than the last time Steve had seen him, and he had to admit that the Coasties had been a real help. Most of the refugees were being slowly moved back to Bermuda Harbor. After a few days' rest out of the waves, they were given the choice of joining the flotilla or going to Coventry. 
Those who volunteered for the flotilla had stayed on board the large. The Coasties had been managing that process, taking some of the burden off of Steve. How's the personnel situation? Steve asked. Nominal, Kuzma said. Until we get more boats, we've got more volunteers than we've got slots. Good, Steve said, hooking a finger. That's going to take some work. Any of them skilled? Two sailors, Bobby said, shrugging. Deckhands, not captains, but they know deck work and some mechanics. But I've got one kid you need to meet. I mean, you stopped by. Want to cover that? Let me meet the kid, Steve said. Lance Corporal, this is Commodore Wolf, Kuzma said. The Lance Corporal jumped off his bunk and came to attention. Lance Corporal Joshua Hosianic, sir. Pleasure to meet you. Hosianic was slightly under normal height, almost skeletally thin, and darkly tanned, a sure sign of having been in a raft or lifeboat rather than stuck in a compartment. He didn't have a beard, which had become common in the flotilla, but he did appear to have a five o'clock shadow. As you were, Marine, Steve said. The crew room was neat as a pin. There was clear evidence of zombie damage, but it had been scrubbed to the walls, and the Marine's blouse was washed and neatly hung on the wall. He'd even polished his boots. Where'd you come from? Steve asked. Life raft, sir, Hosianic barked. The Iwo Jima, Kuzma said softly. Only guy in the life raft. Sir, Hosianic said. I swear, it was abandoned. Start from the beginning, Steve said, sitting down on a chair. Or rather, what happened in general? We were in lockdown, but the bug got on board somehow, sir, Hosianic said, precisely. Just the flu at first, then people started to turn, sir. We tried to maintain control, but... My team leader, Sergeant Fry, he turned in the middle of a clearance, sir, and then he bit PFC Connor. Finally, the acting CO ordered abandoned ship, sir. I... The boats were going over the side, just... Going, sir. I couldn't even find a boat, and I was clocking out, running out of ammo, sir. And I'd got the flu. I didn't know when I was going to turn, sir. I went over the side and into the drink. I was floating when I spotted the raft, sir. I climbed aboard. I tried to paddle to some other guys who were afloat, but the wind was blowing. Sir, I did absolutely everything I could, sir. Calm down, Lance Corporal, Steve said. No worries, as they say in my homeland. Nobody was able to hold on to anything. Generals, admirals, captains, and commanders weren't able to do more. And I'll note that Commodore is an honorary title in my case. <laughs> he considered the Marine for a moment. How are you doing? What's your condition, in your opinion? Ready for duty, sir, Hosianic said. I understand you need clearance personnel. I am ready to fight zombies any day you say, sir. Here's the deal, Steve said. You might have heard rumor we're in contact with Haya. They haven't called back in a while, but the subs, which is how we communicate with them, are still out there. So, presumably, is the unknown headquarters. They haven't given me the right to order military personnel to provide support, but they know that military are working with us and haven't objected. The situation is ambiguous, but we've got an SF sergeant, active duty, doing clearance. I don't see them objecting to a Marine. However, it's up to you. I can't order you to do it. That being said, if you agree, it's like enlisting. You then do follow the orders of whoever is assigned over you. You might just be trained in clearance by a 13-year-old female. Think you can handle that? I've heard about She-Wolf, sir, Hosianic said. Shouldn't be a problem, sir. Do you have a handle, Lance Corporal... Hoochin? Hosianic, sir, the Marine said, his face very clearly not smiling. Hooch or Burma, sir? Burma, Steve asked. If I don't shave three times a day, I get shadow, sir, Hooch said, rubbing his chin. Burma shave, sir. All right, Burma, Steve said, sticking out his hand. Welcome to Wolf's Floating Circus. How's the weather report look? Steve asked. If it chops up, this is purely going to suck. 
The ship wasn't a tanker. It was an oil rig support ship, which in a lot of ways was better. Support ships were designed with massive tanker-like bunkers because, oddly enough, oil rigs had to be resupplied with diesel. But they also had deck cargo room, and some even had machine shops. This could be a real find. There being a few little issues, one of them was not whether it had diesel. They knew that because they could smell it. That was one of the issues. There was a leak somewhere. The other issue was what was on deck. Besides lashed down cargo, there were two zombies, and between the hydrocarbons and not knowing exactly what was in the cargo on the deck, they couldn't exactly shoot them off. It's good, PO3 Ruth Gardner said. Again. For this op, Steve simply had to have some trained people. While Isham cleaned up the Alpha, he'd pulled Geraldine and Dugan off to come try to recover the support ship, but he'd also had to dip into the coasties for support. Ruth Gardner was a fueling expert, called POL in the military. She was trained in unwrap as well as issues with fuel and fuel systems. What she wasn't trained in was repairing fuel systems. Different MOS. Dugan was pretty sure that if it was repairable at all, he could do it. I'm okay with input on how to do this, Steve said, because I'm sort of buggered. I've got an idea, Fontana said, but I don't know if it's a good one. Steve was fine with normal danger, like, say, a zombie apocalypse for Faith. This was something different. So he dropped Hacienic off on the Endeavor with Faith to go do some light clearance and brought along Fontana. Which is? Steve asked. Fontana went over to a bag of gear he'd brought along and rummaged through it. After a moment, he brought out a machete and a sheath and drew it with a flourish. You're joking, Gardner said, munching on a cracker. PO3 Gardner was pregnant. So were many of the women. There had been a noted sociological response to societal stress called the replacement factor. After major disasters, women had a habit of getting pregnant at a higher rate than during good times or during the stress period. The post-war Germany was noted as an example, as well as post-Black Plague Europe. In the case of the zombie apocalypse, it had much more to do with men and women trapped on lifeboats and in small compartments with no access to contraceptives and exactly zero to do. In a few cases, that had definitely been due to force. Those men were on a special boat in Coventry. There were a few cases where the jury was still out. In Ruth's case, like the young lady found with Fontana, there seemed to be no issue. The only real issue is that she was found in a compartment with two other male Coast Guardsmen, and she honestly had no clue which was the father. The dads didn't really care. They were both good-naturedly arguing over who was the real prospective dad. In 1994, 800,000 people were massacred in Rwanda, Fontana said, mostly by having an arm hacked off by a machete and being left to die. These zombies are not walking dead. No, Steve said, but they do spread a blood pathogen. I've been exposed at this point, Fontana said, and I'll wear rain gear, because clear sky or no, it is going to rain. The question is how you're going to get up close enough to chop off an arm, Steve said, conning the inflatable closer. The supply ship had a midship's deck that was, for a ship its size, remarkably low to the waterline. Steve couldn't see how it wouldn't get swamped in heavy seas. Low did not mean flush to the waterline. It was well above Fontana's reach while standing on the deck of the 15-foot center console inflatable. No offense, but I'm not going to step up on the pontoons, Fontana said, looking up at the zombies. They weren't howling or keening, but they were drooling. Not with those down there, Steve said, gesturing at the now familiar sharks. A wave caught the inflatable and pushed it closer to the ship. As it did, one of the infected saw its chance and jumped over the low side rail with a shriek. Keeping your feet on a small boat was a skill that everyone in the flotilla had mastered at this point, and Fontana had spent two months on an even smaller raft before being rescued. He easily backed away as Steve reversed to avoid the zombie, but it had leapt well out and still managed to sprawl face down on the foredeck of the boat. Fontana stepped forward and cut down as the zombie was pushing itself to its feet. 
there was a sound very similar to a frozen melon being hit by a large knife. That's one, Fontana said, levering the machete out of the infected's head. It's times like this I wonder how my children are doing, Steve said. How do you like being back in the Endeavor, Hooch? Sophia said, sitting down at the dinette. Better than a life raft, Skipper, Hooch said. I can't believe Dad stuck me on this tub, Faith said, crossing her arms, especially with you. Is that seditious speech I hear out of you? Sophia said. That's lashing round the fleet. You and what army, tiny, Faith said. Try it. And while I won't exactly mutiny, you're going to have to learn to swim really hard. So, what's the op? Hooch asked quickly. General clearance, Sophia said. There are plenty of boats that can and do pick up life rafts and lifeboats. Those that have survivors, about one in ten, they just pick them up. Like, say, you. Which was what we were on before. But when they spot boats like, well, this, most of them don't have the guns. Or the guts, Faith said, picking at her fish. Or the experience, or the, yeah, guts to go clear them, Sophia said. Which is where you come in. Roger, Skipper. Skipper, Faith said, under her breath. Heh. <laughs> Faith, Sophia said, you can cop attitude in front of my crew. They all know us. You can even do it with Hooch. Hooch, we're sisters, that's all this is. No, I get it, Skip, Hooch said. I've got two sisters, and they... He stopped, and his face worked. I'm sorry for your loss, Sophia said, frowning. We really... Our family is the only family that hasn't lost people to the plague. It's hard for us to truly understand, but... I'm sorry for your loss. It's... Hooch shrugged. I'm not going to count them as lost until I can't find them, Skip. Simple as that. But about the two of you, it's sort of comforting. Listening to sisters argue is sort of like being back home. Doesn't bother me. I get it, Sophia said. But Faith, don't give me crap, at least at first, if we find survivors. If there's an emergency, I don't want them doubting my orders. I can't have that. We can't have that, okay? You and what army? Faith repeated. Yeah, yeah, got it. Seriously. I said I got it, Faith snapped. What is it about got it you don't understand? You can just feel the love, Paula said laughing. I just love you so much, sis, Faith said. You're just the biggest, baddest captain of a dinghy in the whole fleet. I so want to rename it Minnow, Sophia said. Next time we get time, I swear. But it's mine, all mine. The captain, she was a mighty sailing man, Paula caroled. The mate, that's me, was brave and true. Hey, Patrick called from the helm. I thought I was the mate. We're all mates, Sophia said. Well, actually, I think me and Paula are Sheila's. God, I hope so, Hooch said. Because you look like Sheila's, and one deployment to Okinawa was enough. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to Christopher Rocchio, Rachel Mintel, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the Hegelian Overmind, sparking a fireworks show of dialectics, plus the MRIs of 1,000 happy dancing hamsters collected in a highlight reel for Dr. Ted Roberts and his nonfiction article, Are We Just Wired Differently? Now at Bain.com. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast 
and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. Thank you.